Tēnā koutou no mai hai to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern on the Delta outbreak and the future of New Zealand's COVID response. Level 3 is amongst the toughest restrictions you'll see used internationally. And we've used it wisely to try and protect people whilst we continue to vaccinate. Orne Harawira has been trying to keep COVID-19 out of Northland. With summer holidays just around the corner, does he want to keep Aucklanders out too? And another week, another clearance letter mistakenly sent out by health officials to a family isolating with COVID-19. You know, we've got all the experts on uh, dealing with this at the moment. For the pandemic to be as it is at the moment, there's no room for those kind of mistakes. We'll have that story shortly, but we begin with the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, as New Zealand records a new daily record for cases of COVID-19. Now, for the sake of transparency, her office granted Q&A a total of two interviews this year with time limits. This, our second interview, was scheduled on a week and at a time of her office's choosing. It was filmed on Friday morning, and because of COVID restrictions, it couldn't be in person. I began by asking Jacinda Ardern about the pandemic response. I want to focus on a couple of key decisions in your COVID-19 response. The first is the decision to move Auckland to level three, the turning point after which we saw Mm -hmm. a surge in infections. At that stage of the pandemic, what role did public sentiment and vaccination rates play in the decision to go down alert levels? Well, actually, the biggest determining factor in that decision was actually the advice that we were receiving from our public health team, and and not just here uh, in Wellington, and they've always provided us advice on any changes to alert levels, but the public health team in Auckland. You will have heard us talk about at the time of that decision that there was a very strong view that any change in restrictions in Auckland may not necessarily materially affect the area in which we were already seeing that outbreak uh, occur and exist. The second point to make uh, was that there had been many times before, of course, where we had not only managed uh, an outbreak at level three, we had only managed it at level three. So four was a chance for us to get control, and three was the opportunity to continue. But remember, uh, we were dealing with Delta in this scenario, which, and for many reasons, has behaved differently than our past experiences. On the day you decided to move Auckland to level three, 71% of the general population in New Zealand was vaccinated, but just 45% of eligible Māori had received at least one vaccination shot. If that number was true for the general population, would you have moved Auckland to level three? Oh, Jack, we have used level three with zero vaccinated people. So the suggestion that somehow uh, level three is an uncontrolled, restriction-free, uncontained environment is just wrong. In fact, the only time in the past we'd used four was when COVID first came into New Zealand and we first used the alert level framework. Level three traditionally has been the setting that we've used um, with other uh, incursions to get under control and then extinguish an outbreak. So uh, the suggestion that somehow vaccination rates were the basis of that decision is is not correct. Right, Uh, so why why did we go to level four in the first place? The advice we had was at the next stage that we moved to. Why did we go to level four in the first place then? Sorry, what was it? 
Yeah, so the, of course, with Delta, we were seeing, uh, uh, first of all, a virus that was behaving differently. Its infection rate uh, was higher. Uh, we're also seeing uh, the fact that it was, in many cases, uh, uh, some evidence to suggest that the rate of transmission, it was move, it moves more quickly. And of course, with that particular incursion that we had, we at the beginning could not be sure of its entry point and how long it had been circulating in mm. the community. So I absolutely stand by that decision to use that heaviest of levels um, initially. But keep in mind, when we look around the world at where restrictions have been used, level four is amongst the toughest in mm. the world. Three is much more comparable to other countries' lockdowns. It's not designed to be used for prolonged periods of time. Right. So we made that decision around a step down on the basis of advice from health officials. And, Jack, I stand by it. You know, when I looked at the restrictions that are being experienced, and if you look even now at where New Zealand sits compared to the outbreak in New South Wales and Victoria, at this point in time in an outbreak, New Zealand's cases, yes, in Auckland we have cases, mm. yes, we have restrictions, but they continue to be vastly lower because of the way that we responded in those first stages and where we're at. So However... We you are only able to maintain compliance for a particular period of time before you do start to see issues. We have to weigh all of that up. When you moved to Auckland, Māori made up 13% of all Delta infections. Today, Māori make up 36% of active cases. Māori make up roughly half. They are disproportionately infected. It's likely they will disproportionately die. What responsibility do you take for that? I take responsibility in making sure that we use the most important protection that we have available to us now and continue to use it. Restrictions have been used whilst we vaccinate. And keep in mind, we still have significant restrictions in Auckland, and it has been incredibly tough for Tamaki Makoto, but we have mm. used them to ensure that we keep people as safe as possible while we vaccinate. But, but Prime Jack, Minister, your suggestion that we have made, no, if I may, your suggestion that we have taken decisions that have somehow consciously exposed people to risk is wrong. Level three is amongst the toughest restrictions you'll see used internationally. And we've used it wisely to try and protect people whilst we continue to mm. vaccinate. But we have had 28 deaths in New Zealand, 28 too many, mm. but relative to other countries, our hospitalisations have been lower, our death rate has been lower, and we've still managed to protect people's livelihoods. But we now have a tool available to us that I will do everything I can to make sure people take up, and that is the vaccine. But that is, that is a stunning disparity when you look at those numbers. I think about those words you shared at Waitangi when you spoke there as Prime Minister for the first time. Hold us to account, you said, because one day I want to tell my child I earned the right to stand here. History will record that in the face of a deadly pandemic, you began relaxing public health restrictions from those toughest restrictions with a Māori vaccination rate 26 percentage points I behind totally that of the general population. That, Jack. I you can't totally reject those reject numbers. That. You cannot reject those I've, numbers. I've answered the question. Yeah, I, I absolutely reject that. You are suggesting that, uh, that moving to level three, which is, as I have already stated, 
some of the toughest restrictions for anyone to endure, indeed for a prolonged period. I don't need to tell you how long you have been in restrictions in Auckland. And we have done that because we have pursued some of the highest vaccination rates relative to other countries that we've seen in the developed world. We have overtaken the United States, Israel. We're now chasing hot on the heels of most of those European countries. And still, we have restrictions. But now, I've had strong calls to ease, mm. if I may. I've had strong calls to ease more quickly and more rapidly. But we have moved very cautiously for the precise reason that you've raised, to do everything we can to protect people. And we continue to do so. But at the same time, we have now, unfortunately, a virus that we, is not behaving as it did mm. before. We must use vaccines. And we've seen now rates in Auckland that are astonishing. Mm. But we continue to pursue the safest option possible to protect people. Uh while beginning to move forward. OK, I mean, you can reject, Prime Minister, you can reject whatever sentiment you think I have. You cannot reject the numbers. The day you made that decision, Māori were 13% of all Delta infections. Today, they are 36%. Dr Rawiri Taunui, who is mapping Māori infections, says this is now shaping up as the biggest social economic health issue to affect Māori since the Second World War. And that's on your watch. But you are asking me these questions from a city that continues, after 70 days, that continues to be in restrictions. The, I think what you're suggesting is that we should have had 70 days of Level 4. At the time that we moved to Level 3 and we started easing, uh, and when I say easing, mm. allowing people to see loved ones outside, Dr Jansen described it is a compassionate decision. There are many competing things that we have to constantly weigh up. I have to constantly weigh up, yes, people's health mm. and protecting people, and that's been the top of our decision-making. But I also have to weigh up the impact on people's mental health and wellbeing, mm. people's economic status and their livelihoods, issues of family safety. All of these issues are at play, and you will hear people in mm. many different corners voicing these concerns. But our response has been a consistent one, Jack. It's been utterly consistent. People first. And that is why New Zealand sits amongst mm. very few countries that can claim to have the death rate that we've had, 28 mm. too many. But when you compare it to the rest of the world, we have not seen the devastating impact of others because of the choices we've made. Let's talk about the rest of the world. In August, less than two weeks before Delta was confirmed in our community, you ruled out using domestic vaccine certificates despite the fact they were being used all over the place to handle Delta overseas. Why did you do that? Yeah, I don't, I don't actually consider myself to be nearly as black and white as I've had that position as that presented to me. So in an ideal world, would we have a situation where we're adding these extra checks and things like vaccine certificates? In an ideal world, would we be having to use those? No, ideally you wouldn't. Mm. You'd have such high levels of uptake amongst your eligible population that you wouldn't need to. But we're faced with a choice, and the choice is you either uh, have a situation where you don't check and so you have vaccinated and unvaccinated and therefore the risk of transmission... And that means that you have to use a high level of public health restrictions or you use these tools, you give greater certainty to business operators 
and the ability to be more consistently open and service So why weren't they developed That's before the now? Choice. So I would, I would still have preferred... I don't believe I did. Asking a preference okay. over what we'd like to see happen, yes, well, of course, I well, stand, I, and I stand by that. Okay, I still okay. would, uh, in, like a situation where everyone who's eligible took up a vaccine. Sure, I think we but all look, would. It's let's, not let's, been let's clarify that point. The case. Sorry to interrupt you, but we're just short on time. To, to clarify that point, why aren't vaccine certificates ready? Why did you take until the second half of this year when Delta was in 163 countries and vaccine certificates were being used in dozens of countries overseas to finally start developing vaccine certificates in New Zealand? So we have a vaccine uh, system, pass system that's already available. We're trialling it digitally um, next week. Uh, of course, you do have to make sure that you have an environment where people have had the chance to be fully vaccinated before you use them. We could operate on a paper-based pass now. In fact, I know individuals who have carried mm. the COVID pass that we already have in the United States where that is as sophisticated as their system is. We work to develop something more sophisticated so that businesses can use a scanner to ensure that it is a verified um, vaccine certificate. So we've developed something a little more sophisticated than what some other countries have, but we could use a paper-based system now if we so chose. When will the digital version be 100% operational? Before we move into using them routinely uh, as part of the COVID protection framework, so which of course th this is month Auckland, or next month um, could be could be could be this could be um, if we see those vaccine rates continue could well be this month. Um, we are, as I say, uh, um, from next week. Uh, trialling in different settings the use of those vaccine mm. certificates so that they're all ready to go. After the break, we try to get clarity on the future of Auckland's border. We will have Aucklanders able to travel through summer and they will be able to reunite with family for Christmas. Mai, welcome back to Q&A. For the second half of our conversation with Jacinda Ardern, we turned to the future of our, of our pandemic response. We have been canvassing sentiment among Auckland businesses this week. And we should say, many businesses have told us the wage subsidy and resurgence payment have been really helpful. But clearly, some are fed up. We spoke to one hairdresser who said customers are putting pressure on them to do illegal haircuts in parks. And here are a couple of quotes from businesses we spoke to. We can't tell what the hell is happening from a government perspective. All the Prime Minister does is, re is announce reassessments, which makes it sound like the government has no plan. What will you do to repair your relationship with Auckland's business community? Well, of course, what we needed to do is provide in the uncertain environment of COVID as much certainty as possible. The COVID protection framework sets out uh, that... Unlike the past, where you did have situations where businesses may be periodically closed, sets out a future where actually businesses continue to operate mm. regardless of the status of the pandemic. And that's because we're able to use other public health measures to keep people safe. So that gives them that certainty. So for Auckland businesses, they know once we hit that 90% target, we move into that new framework and those businesses, whether you're a hairdresser or hospitality, are able to open. What does it say about the coherence of your government strategy that a month before the summer holidays, your COVID-19 minister and your finance minister are publicly contradicting each other when it comes to plans for people leaving Auckland over summer? 
On the border, you know, the thing that we've been absolutely clear uh, around is that we will have Aucklanders able to travel through summer and they will be able to reunite with family for Christmas. So the challenge that we are very openly sharing that we are working our way through is, of course, in the new COVID protection framework, once we have a highly vaccinated Aotearoa, we will not be using hard borders. But it is, a, uh, it is something that we have now, while we are mm. in what is admittedly a tricky transition period, it is helping us contain the outbreak while we vaccinate and keep people safe. Will we have to book of a course, time to leave uh, the city? That presents a logistical challenge, and we've been open about that, of how do we use the tools available to us to prevent the outbreak spreading outside of Auckland's border whilst allowing people to move. So, Jack, that means finding a way where 30 to 40,000 people can safely move through um, the border in a way that uh, uh, is not uh, logistically challenging, both for those travelling mm. and for those operating. So that's what we're facing. We're working it through, but we are committed to people being uh, reunited yeah. over that summer period. I'm, I'm sorry, so you, you haven't answered that. My, 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 and you've just been talking about the importance of providing as much certainty as possible to businesses and people who are still in so lockdown. So what people are looking for is logistically how we will undertake uh, those checks at a land boundary that New Zealand traditionally has never had before. Mm. And what I'm uh, sharing is that that is what our officials are currently working through on ways that we can make that as seamless as you possibly can, given we do not traditionally operate land boundaries. Would you support uh, and so Aucklanders when we having have to book a the spot? information to provide around the date and the way it will operate, we will do so. But as you can imagine, it is it is not mm. an easy exercise and one I want to make sure that before I put the information out, I can answer all of the questions you'll have. There are hundreds of COVID-positive people currently isolating at home in New Zealand. Why won't you allow COVID-negative yes. Kiwis who are double-jabbed to return from comparable countries and isolate at home as well? Yeah, because as you'll have seen from uh, those that we've always uh, listened to and heard evidence from in our management of COVID, and as you've seen from other countries, the border is the last lever that mm. tends to be pulled. So we know, of course, and we've tended to what we've done with those who are coming in from overseas is now that we have and we can maintain and expect those coming in to be double vaccinated, we've changed up the way that we're treating those returnees. So they're treated now like a contact. So a contact of a COVID case in New Zealand, we ask them to isolate for a period of time to be tested and then they can be released. Yep. And that's how we're treating people at the border. So we're shortening the time that they have in MIQ. Uh, so that's in alignment with what we're doing with our contacts. They're able to go home now for part mm. of that. And in the new year, we'll look into transition from MIQ being the place that they do that to in their home. But why not now? now? One of the reasons I mean, we have hundreds uh, we of people in a transition. Sorry, right. But why not now? I mean, we if have hundreds of people to, I was about who are to cut COVID positive. Well, the thing Jack, is, you're I not can answering answer the question. That question so, for you, if you yeah, would like. Okay. So, so please, you've laid out the framework. All I'm asking is, is what is the scientific reasoning that somehow it is okay to have COVID-positive COVID people isolating at home at the moment, but COVID-negative people who've been tested and double-jabbed can't do the same thing? So, if I may, the scientific reasoning, of course, is, as we all know, uh, a simple test on entry doesn't tell you whether or not someone is COVID-positive. And a vaccine doesn't stop you from necessarily being COVID positive. It reduces mm. it, but not completely. 
all of the modelling that has been done for us as we've transitioned into our new, working on our new system, uh, is that without any controls at the border, you will seed further outbreaks that will lead to greater hospitalisations and greater deaths. Mm. So you do need to have border controls still, unless you want to be overrun. Yeah. So the border controls, of course, that we're operating on the basis of still allow for us to continue to test people while they're isolating for the very fact that that first test doesn't tell you if they have COVID, but a day five one, for instance, um, does help reduce the risk, which is exactly what we do with our contacts in New Zealand, and it's how we're treating cases at the border. If we, when we have New Zealanders returning home, we will have tens of thousands at a time. So the reason we haven't flipped straight to home isolation is we do want to make sure that we've got those safety mechanisms in place to make sure people can do it safely at home, they can be tested at home, and we just reduce down the risk. Even then, it won't be perfect, Jack. You know, mm. we do. We are factoring in that we will continue to likely have cases that may be seeded from the border. But you want to reduce down the scale of that because once you open it up, uh, it's not something that you can easily put the lid back on. And nor do we want to. I want to ask you a couple of questions before we leave you about non-COVID related things. In 2017, you were elected on a promise to tackle the housing crisis. In your time in office, median house prices in New Zealand have increased 47%. Now, you say you don't want house prices to fall, but you do want them to be affordable. So, indexed to the medium household income, what is an affordable house in New Zealand? I've said that I don't want the housing market to collapse. Um, but, of course, what's happening at the moment is completely unsustainable. And, of course, what will be affordable is always relative to someone's income. What I use as a guide is what's happening with our first home buyers. So in the last September quarter, my recollection, Jack, is that they've made up roughly 25% of transactions. Mm. I want to see that number grow, and I want to see the number of New Zealanders who are in their own home grow. And increasingly, the trend that when we were elected was that that was declining. Mm. So, yes, we have seen house price growth. We've seen house price growth in some areas that is just unsustainable and making housing mm. unattainable. What? And so that is why we've done everything around everything from changing the tax system to changing mm -hmm. even the way that mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing consents fast-tracked, um, changing some of the planning rules so that you can see greater intensification. And that's um, uh, the suggestion is that will bring an extra 100,000 homes. Uh, we've seen so record consents. We've seen predictions that some of these changes will start to see a cooling. But I won't stop pulling every lever we have to make mm. a difference to those who are so, seeking home so, ownership. So please just answer my question then, because you just said that affordability is relative to someone's income, which is exactly what I'm asking. So relative to the median household I'm not income, put a number, I'm not going to put a number on that for you, because... Because, Jack, it will, you know, again, you know, something that someone in Auckland may consider affordable will not feel for affordable necessarily to someone Prime in another Minister, part this is of how an index works. It's um, a basic economic principle. Moment, That's it. Medium household income to median house price. It's a very basic and widely used international standard as a measure of housing affordability. And you aren't prepared to tell us what you think an affordable house is. And, of course, housing affordability and whether or not people are in housing stress, of course, is, is used as a measure against someone's income. Uh, and, of course, we've seen in New Zealand that consistently people are paying over 30% of their incomes on their housing costs. Mm. Consistently, many on restricted incomes, such as government government support are paying vastly more than that. So, of course, it is a relative measure, mm. Jack. We do want to keep improving and reducing those costs because we know we have been in the midst for some time now a growing housing crisis that as a government mm. we have 
committed ourselves to and continue to be committed to. Still haven't answered the question, Prime Minister. Hey, uh, before we let you go, it is the Labour Party Jack, conference this week. I will continue. <laughs> um, it is the Labour Party conference this week. Will you commit to standing for a third term? Oh, well, <laughs> I'm only one year into the one I'm in now. I have no plans to change what I'm doing. Uh, and so that is, I am the leader of the Labour Party. I'm currently privileged to be the Prime Minister of New Zealand. I have no other plans for my future than what I'm doing right now. Tina Queer, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for yours. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Coming up, imagine the burden of being at COP26 as the representative for a tiny Pacific nation that stands just two metres above sea level. But next, Hornia Harawira on Northland's COVID future and whether Aucklanders should be able to visit this summer. Kia ora we welcome back to Q&A. Upper Northland remains in lockdown this morning as the least vaccinated region in Aotearoa waits to see if community spread can be contained. The pressure to relax Northland's border with Auckland is only likely to increase over the next few weeks and Hone Harawira will be playing close attention. He's with us now live. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Morena Jack, morena koutou. Several more confirmed cases in Northland over the last 24 hours. Is the outbreak under control? You never know if it's under control. We do know that, as far as I know, they are part of the one cluster, so hopefully we can try and uh, maintain connection with those whanau. And that's a real big thing for us, is not so much waiting for what somebody else does. It's us contacting them immediately, asking them how can we help dropping them off some kai, letting them know that the community in Murifenua cares for them. I want to talk about the community and the community response in the future to COVID-19. You had to isolate at home while you waited for the results of a COVID-19 test, but there were 10 people isolating yeah. together in your whare. So is isolation a workable yeah. option for people in Northland in the future when they're exposed to COVID-19? I think in the first instance, that's what we'd like it to be, as long as those who are isolating uh, understand that and, and follow that. Now, that's difficult. When you live up here, you've got the best beaches in the world. Uh, people go fishing, people go hunting. If you if you're work in the forestry and your wife works, it's really, really difficult to hold it together. Uh, so that's why we do our best to try and wrap around them. Uh, we know that uh, things are going to get tough. I'm glad that one of our... Uh, um, uh, isolation units at our, at our hospital has been made available to try and support one of the whānau. So, yeah, we, we're doing it as much as we can within the community and with our hospital here in Kaitaia. The Northern DHB is sitting last nationwide in terms of vaccination rates. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think uh, the Prime Minister did a good job for the nation in terms of uh, setting standards. But those standards were not the standards that were required to lift Māori from the position they are at the bottom to where they need to be. So we are still, I think, right across the whole of Taitukero, we're still below 50% uh, double vac. So we are in trouble and we just want to try and get some real focus on trying to get as many of our people, their vaccination rates up. Mm. And in terms of Aucklanders, I've got to say, we've got a bunch of Aucklanders arriving today. Uh, that's uh, John, John Tamihere, 
and, uh, and, and Waipareira, who are bringing up some, um, some of the vaccination buses to help mm. uh, get the message out and to help vaccinate as many people as we can. So you're just trying to get as much as we can to get our people up and ready for when mm. um, yeah, the green light, uh, the traffic light system doesn't really work for those of us here in Murifenua because where I live, you've got to travel 155 kilometres to the nearest traffic light, so it's not really part of our world. <laughs> our world is about our community, mm. our whānau, and our support for one another, Jack. You mentioned the central government response. In our interview, the Prime Minister rejected any suggestion that the decision to move Auckland to Level 3 disproportionately endangered Māori or consciously exposed Māori to risk. But the number of Māori infected with Delta has surged since that decision. What do you think? Ah, uh, yeah, no. It, like I said before, the government made a decision based on what they perceived to be uh, the greatest value for the whole of New Zealand. But it was clear, and uh, Dr. Awadi Taunui was making it clear in his analyses, which are coming out every second day, that if you drop that level, Māori rates will go up. And he was, he's proved to be right every step of the way, and now Māori, particularly in Auckland, are almost completely out of control in terms of the numbers. Mm. Māori and Pacifica. So for us uh, in the north here, we've got a lot of our whānau uh, live down in Tāmaki. In fact, most of Māori Whenua live in, more of Māori Whenua live in Auckland than they do up here. So, you know, we're really concerned about it. But right now it still is a case of we still need to get our numbers up before we can think about opening the door. What difference is misinformation making? Oh, it's absolutely huge. Uh, look, it, and if we take away the pro-vax, uh, anti-vax kind of an argument, a lot of poor people, Jack, here's the reality. They, a lot of them won't, won't have a TV. They don't read the newspaper. They don't listen to the news. They've all got cell phones. Cell phones, which means that that's their primary source of information. That's the internet. Mm. That's social media. That's that misinformation stuff. And so... Unfortunately, a lot of our people are, are buying into that. There's this, this parky guy who's been threatening me, threatening other people. Um, he's, he's trying to drum up support. And a lot of Māori people, because they think when he talks about freedom, he's talking about rangatiratanga, they, they are listening to that message, when in fact he's part of the white anti-vaxxer um, mm -hmm. campaign, which is very, very similar to those Republicans in the United States. So, And as we understand it, are funded partially from that source as well. So we're saying to our people, listen to your people, listen to your doctors. Up here in Murifeno, we've got Dr. Mm -hmm. Lance O'Sullivan, Dr. Kapawaidua Stevens, we've got Kono O'Sullivan, we've got Dr. Kath Rollo, and, uh, mm. uh, yeah. and Joel Pirini, yeah. all, from, all from here, all from here. And uh, I say to people, don't listen to anything else you're hearing from in, in the world. Go talk to your doctor. You know them. In fact, you're probably related to them. Hone, ask I've got them what they think and take their advice. I've got to ask you, Hone, there will be people who are watching this who say everyone yep. in Aotearoa, regardless of where they are, has had plenty of time to get vaccinated. They have had plenty of time to get educated on the benefits of vaccination and that if at this point in the response they haven't been vaccinated, I'm sorry, but that's on them. What do you say to that? That can never be our point of view. Just like I was talking about those COVID cases that we have, mm. it's the same with people who are unvaccinated. A number of the COVID cases we have up here are unvaccinated. But no point in us whacking them with a stick. They're our whānau, vaccinated or unvaccinated. They're mm. still our whānau. 
Our job is to do everything we can to raise the education levels, to raise the vaccination levels, and to do it by letting them know we love them. You mentioned Te Whanau or Waipareira who are coming to assist with the vaccination drive yeah. into Tai Tokiro. Uh, the government over the last couple of weeks has pumped millions of dollars into community health providers in Māori communities. What difference has that made? Actually, I'm watching the, our, our local DHB anyway in Kaitaia, our hospital, Neta Smith and her, her crew. I'm watching the Haora crews, Haora uh, mm. uh, and with Haora uh, Hokianga. I'm watching Whangaroa Health. I'm watching Errol Murray and his crew up, up in the far north. They're all like dropping like flies from fatigue, doing their best to try and get out and vaccinate as many people as possible. And then every time a COVID case arises, the place is jam-packed for testing. So there's a lot of, um, lot of pressure on them, and we're just doing what we can in, in terms of border control to limit the number of people coming into our territory to give our meagre medical resources and our mm. awesome medical teams the opportunity to lift our vaccination rates at home. Let me ask about the border. Should Aucklanders be able to travel to yeah. Northland over the Christmas break? <clears throat> um, let me just say this to, to everybody down in Auckland. Uh, we love you. Uh, you are from here, uh, many of you, and those who aren't, you've been here in the past and we'd love to have you back. But please understand, if, we, if with all of our work, we aren't able to get our rates up, please understand if it's going to be a little later than it needs to be. Our aim has to be, first of all, to care for our people, to provide as much as we can uh, to ensure their health and well-being is the, is the main target. Didn't quite answer that, Horne. Should Aucklanders be able to travel to Northland oh. over the Christmas break? Oh, you're good at this, Jack. I noticed you didn't get an answer out of the Prime Minister either. But still, <laughs> my answer is, if we're, up, if we're up in the high 90s, welcome. Welcome to our world. But if we're not, understand if it's going to be another couple of weeks mm. until we get there. So, so what will you do if Auckland... Uh, if, what will you do if Northland isn't in the 90%, hasn't reached that 90% mark and the central government says, OK, we are going to allow Aucklanders to travel if they are double jabbed and negative tested? Uh, I think the first point is that my understanding is you can't come up here if our light is in green. If your lights are all green in Auckland, check. You can run around from, from the eastern side to the western side. You can run around from Mesa all the way up to Tehana, uh, but you have to stay within your green light system. Mm. Once we're green lighted, and we're certainly doing as much as we can to get there, Jack, because we want to get out, we want to get free, we want to catch up with our whanau as well. Um, we want to make sure that that happens as soon as we possibly can make it. The whanau water agencies are in a legal battle with the Ministry of Health to get access to personal data in order to assist them hone their vaccination efforts. What do you think of the Ministry's response and efforts so far? Well, I'm bloody pissed off, actually, that uh, John Tamihere and Wai Fano, on behalf of all of the Fano water providers, on behalf of all of the Māori health providers, and on behalf of all of the Māori organisations and iwi, right around the country, has had to take this to court. I mean, when the, when the MOH, Ministry of Health, uses the Privacy Act, they're using an act that was exactly the same in 2019 as it is now. But this, we are facing the worst pandemic you and I have ever seen, Jack. Uh, the rules should change. 
The rules have changed for Māori. Our tikanga have been turned on its head. Our tangihanga, our hui, our engagement with one another. Mm. We've had to change all of our tikanga, and we do so. We do so because we know that's for the best interests of our people. We're always saying to the Crown is, you've got to take this Privacy Act and you've got to set aside uh, the privacy of an individual and, and simply look at the welfare and health and well-being of the community. Like, uh, here's, here's something I don't know if you guys know yet, Jack, but we know who most of the COVID cases are up here, not because the health authorities tell us, but because we find out. We shake the kumara vine, we find out. Yesterday I heard from Whangarei about a guy up here, um, part mm. islander, so my, my son-in-law just finished uh, cooking some loo and uh, making some raw fish, so just grabbed some and I shot around and dropped it off to his place. He was so happy. And we've done that without the whānau. We dropped some uh, kai, some KFC, fish and chips. All we're trying to do mm. is let our people know we're here. We love you. Regardless of what's happened to you, uh, we have no doubt not one of these people went out to get COVID. Mm. But they have been struck down by it. And if we can do our bit to help get them out of it, bring them back into our community mm. healthy and safe and well, then we're, we're happy as well. Tēnā koe e We appreciate your time. That is Hone Harawira live from Kyle. <laughs> he rawe tōna mōwhiri. Love the sunglasses look. After the break, every country has skin in the game when it comes to global warming. But some more than others. A small Pacific nation fights for survival at COP26. Kia ora we welcome back. From Tāmaki to Te Tai Tokiro to Scotland, world leaders have packed up at COP26 and left their delegates to continue debating emissions reductions. For residents of the Marshall Islands, the debate in Glasgow isn't abstract or theoretical. It is very much existential. The islands and atolls are only about two metres above sea level. A temperature rise of two degrees Celsius would be devastating. Cathy Detnell-Kitchener is a delegate at COP26 for the Marshall Islands, and she and I spoke late last night. Yeah, so the Marshall Islands is located in the northern Pacific region. Um, we are an atoll nation, meaning that we're only two meters above sea level. And our type of island has no mountains, and it's completely flat, and it's really, really thin strips of land. So with only a half a meter of sea level rise, we have it, it, would make, it, it would make it unlivable living back home in the Marshalls like that, yeah. So we're extremely vulnerable. Do people in the Marshall Islands talk about what they would do if their home becomes uninhabitable? I think there's some conversations that are happening. Um, you know, those of us who are working in the climate sphere are definitely more concerned than, you know, regular day-to-day -day people who are, you know, living their lives and just trying to pay the bills and take care of their families. But um, we are launching into a community consultation for our national adaptation plan. It's one of our, our biggest comprehensive uh, survey of people's thoughts on climate change. If anything, it's the biggest kind of public outreach that we've ever done. And it's to mm. get people's perspectives on how, what they would want for our future for adaptation. And see, that's the key word, adaptation. You're not talking about mitigation here. You're talking about preparing for a future where climate change presents enough of a risk for your home that you have to significantly adapt the way you live. And, and how might that look? 
Yeah, so that's actually really key, and I'm, I'm glad that you picked up on that because um, before, years before this, we've been focused on mitigation and getting the rest of the world to lower their emissions. But we're now at a critical turning point where it's gotten more serious, and we're looking inwards and trying to protect ourselves first because we're seeing that it's just not enough, and there are extreme consequences coming down the pipeline for us. So what we're looking at are options like reclaiming land, elevating land, um, relocating within the islands, and then um, migration is on the table, but we're like completely against complete mass migration. So it's really extreme adaptation solutions that we're looking at, and it's going to be several billions of dollars of, of funding to be able to implement it. You mentioned migration. That's obviously the extreme end of the scale for solutions or adaptation options. But is that something that Marshallese people consider realistically? I think migration is something that uh, is ongoing and it happens just because people migrate, you know, as, as a normal way of, of living. Um, but mm. we are completely, as a government, our stance is against mass migration as an option for adaptation. It's actually the cheapest option, but, you know, financially. But um, emotionally, it has the highest cost, and culturally, it has the highest cost. And so we, we are not, we're taking that off the table completely. As a delegate, what have you been doing at COP? So as a delegate, I have been um, following some of the loss and damage uh, conversations, and I, I'm new to that, so I'm, I'm just learning about it myself. Um, I've been representing our country at several panels and getting the word out, uh, you know, help facilitating bilaterals and supporting our minister in his um, in his in his bilaterals and events as well. Our minister of health and assistance uh, of health, uh, Bruce Billiman. And how do other delegates at COP26 treat the team from the Marshall Islands? I think the, they treat the team great. You know, I think we're all just trying to make sure that uh, our our needs are met and that our voices are heard um, and that there's some collective uh, working together here. I think we're all trying to get to the ultimate goal of, of, of survival, basically. Do you think that's the case? That, that's, that's why I ask, because I can imagine a, a scenario where you, as a representative of the Marshall Islands, go to bigger, richer, more populated countries where climate change doesn't present as immediate of a threat as it does in the Marshall Islands. And I can imagine it might be easy for some of those people to dismiss your concerns. I think it's pretty difficult. And um, I, I know that it, it's tough for people to see those kinds of existential threats, you know, uh, as that serious. But they're also experiencing some pretty intense climate impacts across the board. You know, like they're experiencing wildfires themselves and droughts and flooding and I think people are waking up to that because they're seeing it in their own countries too. So I actually do think that, yeah. Yeah. Delegates from the Marshalls have been to many of these meetings in the past. Talk to me a little bit more about the significance of changing from a mitigation to an adaptation approach when it comes to being at these international gatherings. I think um, the COP is, is becoming more and more aware of how important adaptation is. I think those of us in the global south are you know, having to deal with it ourselves. And so we're pushing the narrative that um, mitigation is important. It needs to go hand in hand with adaptation, but that we need more financing for adaptation right now. So the current issue is that there's not enough financing for adaptation. So much more of it is towards mitigation. So um, that's what we've been advocating for is trying to get more and more financing for that. Yeah. What sort of financing does the Marshall Islands need? 
we need several billion to just to implement our adaptation plan, you know, like tens of billions. So we're looking at huge numbers. And considering the fact that Marshall Islands contributes 0.00005% of the world's global emissions, and yet we're having to adapt just to stay in our islands, we shouldn't have to pay a single cent to adapt. And so that's the kind of financing that we need and that we deserve. Mm. And then if you extrapolate that problem and that funding deficit across all of the other low-lying Pacific atolls and Pacific islands that will need to mitigate for climate change in the future, it's going to be an astronomical cost. Yes, the $100 billion, I think we've all already know, is not enough. You know, I think we're, it's going to be in the trillions. And so, I mean, that $100 billion needs to be uh, split between 100 developed con developing countries. So we shouldn't be fighting for scraps at all. So that's why we definitely need to keep pushing for more and more financing. How many billions have you secured? <laughs> Uh, I don't know the exact number, so, but I think it, it's 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 been raising and it, it's been climbing the, the the numbers, and I think uh, we we have faith that we we need to just keep pushing for more. Are there some countries that are more open to helping fund your mitigation strategies in the future, uh, your adaptation strategies in the future than other countries? Um, I think that there hasn't been a specific country, but I, I know that New Zealand has been really good about setting aside several billion just for Pacific Island countries, and, and we were really grateful for that uh, contribution already. One of the main criticisms of COP is that from the outside, mm -hmm. it often looks like a lot of world leaders gathering together, talking a big game, getting a couple of photographs, and then flying off in private jets. Do you share the same do you share the same cynicism on the inside? Um, you know, I think I think that's definitely the case for some countries. But there's countries like ours. There's countries like you know from the Alliance of Small Island States. These are smaller countries who are just coming here to, and doing our best to hold the line. You know, and these are all indigenous uh, people of color, global South countries, and. Um, we're not here for any other purpose than to protect our interests and, and, to, and to protect the interests of, you know, our environment. So I don't think that that's all, that's all that it, there is. And that discredits all of the work of uh, the hard work of people of color who are here doing that and, and all the indigenous people who are doing that work. We've just heard from some of the world leaders who have been at COP over the last week or so. What are some of the tangible steps on the mitigation front rather than the adaptation front that those world leaders could take in order to assist the Marshall Islands? Well, I think that some difficulties we've been having is um, the transitional period from uh, a transition period from uh, uh, surviving on, on coal and gas and transitioning to renewable energies. Um, that transition period needs funding, like purchasing like large generators is, is, is an example, just so that we can actually transition over to renewable energy. And that's, that, that's been uh, a funding source that we've been having trouble identifying. That's according to our National Energy Office. Um, and so I think that's something simple and kind of technical, but that really needs that support too. The latest greenhouse gas inventory shows New Zealand's emissions have been increasing in recent years. And on a per capita basis, we actually have some of the highest overall emissions in the world. What would be your message to New Zealand? Uh, I definitely think New Zealand needs to remember the rest of the Pacific. They need to remember their role and, in, and their contributions towards climate change and, you know, putting their money, you know, and, and creating those, uh, putting that financing aside for the Pacific was great but it doesn't mean anything if they're not also lowering their emissions. So that definitely has to come hand in hand. 
Yeah, here of course methane makes up a large part of our emissions profile because we have a very large agricultural export sector. And you know, this week New Zealand signed the international pledge to reduce methane overall by 30% or 33% by the end of this decade. And yet at the moment our own domestic targets are only to reduce methane by 10%. So you have directly contradictory figures there. And a lot of critics look at those kind of examples and say, again, it's all talk and no action. What do you think? I, I, I do think that um, these criticisms are, are, are really important and we need to keep holding governments accountable. You know, if, uh, we need to look across the board and they need to be making the changes across all the intersections and all the different types of, um, of gas that, that, that is happening. So I, I do think that they're on the way and, and we encourage that movement, but that we also still need to keep holding each other accountable to make those changes necessary. What will you consider a successful COP26? Uh, I would consider a successful COP26 um, maybe more commitment to financing for adaptation. I think a, 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 a huge increase of, of commitment to adaptation for financing, um, loss and damage being um, having its own separate financing stream and loss and damage being on the table and being prioritized as an issue. Um, yeah, so I think I would, I would just start with those for now and Indigenous and human rights being uh, centred uh, in our conversations. I hope you're not weirded out by this, but um, I've been researching you and, and you're quite a remarkable person. I note that you have spoken about climate change in some amazing high pressure settings. You are a poet as well. But personally, I wondered, what is it like to carry the responsibility of your country's future? Mm. Well, I don't. <laughs> I like to say <laughs> I don't carry the responsibility because it's not just me. Um, you know, I might be the face and I've been speaking on it for so long, but there's an entire climate change team back at home. We have a huge climate change team that's here and, you know, we're all pulling together as much as we can and we're aligning with other small island states and with other Pacific countries to make sure that, you know, our, our, our needs are met. So I, I feel safe in knowing that it's not all on me. <laughs> Here I was thinking it was going to be this big dramatic question. <laughs> and I was like, no. <laughs> yeah, you're like, uh, no. Um, one last question then. What, yeah. what, would, what do you think on our current trajectory and from the conversations you and your team are having, what do you think life will be like for people in the Marshall Islands 50 years from now? I think it's going to dramatically change. Um, the options that we're looking at for adaptation requires us having to move community members. Um, we're going to have to figure out which islands are going to be hit first and hardest. And we've already got some figures on which islands those are because they're different. There's over 29 atolls in the Marshalls and each of them has community members, different stories, different cultures within it, like their own kind of set of societal standards and expectations. and. Um, we have a really complicated land tenure system. That's all going to shape and adapt according to how we shape and adapt our land. And, you know, that's really heavy, you know, these questions that we're asking ourselves. It's completely unfair that we're doing that, but it's our only way to maintain our sovereignty. It's our only way, maintain, way to maintain our land and our, our culture. So we're going to do whatever it is. So basically, it's going to look different. It's going to change. Um, and But we're hoping that we can make those changes with our community in mind, with our most vulnerable in mind, so that we change for the better. And so that's what we're hoping for and envisioning. That is Marshallese delegate Kathy Jetnell Kitchener speaking to me from Glasgow last night. After the break, 
COVID positive, but given the all clear, more problems for Aucklanders isolating at home with the virus. This time last week, we brought you the experiences of Lorraine Porpatter, whose family had tested positive for COVID-19 and have been isolating at home in Tāmaki Makoda. First, it took four days for Lorraine to get her symptomatic children tested for the virus. Then, health officials mistakenly sent her partner a clearance letter, even though he was bedridden with COVID-19. Some of you thought we were too critical to highlight the family's problems, especially as health officials monitor hundreds of at-home isolations. But this week, it has happened again. Same family, same problem. After everyone at home caught COVID-19 and after two previous negative tests, Amalia Porpata was the last member of her family to start feeling sick. She ended up having symptoms on the 29th and she got it really, she got it quite bad. Uh, she had dizziness, she fainted one part there. She, she pretty much got all the symptoms um, and she ended up in hospital. So I was a little bit worried with, with her. But a few days later, as she recovered at home, health officials sent the family a letter saying Amalia was no longer infectious with COVID-19 and she could end her time in quarantine. It had been about four or five days since her first symptom and she was still very infectious, given the information that we've been given of the time frame of the infectious period. It was, it was too early. Just days earlier, the same thing happened to Amalia's dad. Health officials sent him a clearance letter, even though he was still bedridden with COVID-19. Last week on Q&A, Andrew Little told us the mistake wasn't acceptable. It's disappointing to hear that some systems are not yet up running as well as they could, but uh, I'm, I'm confident that that won't be a common experience. Now, though, it's happened to one family on two separate occasions. It shouldn't be a mistake. You know, we've got all the experts on uh, dealing with this at the moment. For the pandemic to be as it is at the moment, there's no room for those kind of mistakes. The whole Porpata family is now on the mend, but with hundreds of people now isolating at home with the virus, they worry the community could be at risk if others are mistakenly given the all clear. Now, for its part, Northern Regional Public Health told us this, quote, We acknowledge mistakes were made in this instance and are reviewing our processes and procedures to identify how they can be improved. We apologise to the family for the distress this has caused and thank them for their ongoing efforts. A reminder, there are more than 800 people currently self-isolating with COVID-19. Cool, Matu. That is Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching. And now, mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thank you for your messages. Thanks to the Q&A team. Hey te wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.